1: Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm.
0: Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hello, my name is Kaylin and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855am, 3CR Digital Radio and 3CR.org.au. Today we will be speaking with Vincent Tivoli. Vincent is a writer and he completed a Bachelor in Writing and Publishing at NMIT in 2014. He made a rock album in the late 80s called What Psychosis, Mummy? In his early 20s, he had an emotional breakdown but recovered and went on to become a youth worker. In his early 40s, Vincent experienced another challenge with his mental health journey and out of this experience, in 2014, he published a book called It's Okay to Grieve for Yourself, A Guide to Healing Power in the 21st Century. And in 2015, he published another book called The Grieving Revolution, A Practical Guide to Healing and Peace. For 17 years, he worked in youth housing and homeless teen- with homeless teenagers and as a pastoral practitioner with patients at Caulfield, the Alfred and St Vincent Hospitals. He completed a clinical pastoral education course at the Alfred and has a Master in Theological Studies at the University of Divinity, which focused on grief and loss. Uh, Vincent is here to talk about grief in society and his podcast, Zerubabel Bow and the day the world stopped crying. Now, before we get started today, Vincent has kindly offered to start today's show with an acknowledgement of country. Vincent, welcome, and I'm going to hand it over to
1: you now. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Kaylin, and greetings to everyone out there. And may I begin by acknowledging and paying my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation.
0: Wonderful. Thanks, Vincent. And again, welcome to Brainwaves. Uh, So firstly, if you could tell us a bit about your background and how you got involved in writing.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s in Brisbane. And at night time, my brothers Nick Emmanuel, and I would go to the Piccadilly Arcade coffee shop and another coffee shop called The Great American Disaster and we would write poetry. But during my teenage years, I struggled with mental health issues and at about the age of 22, I had what you could call a dark night of the soul. It was during that time I documented my experience in the form of a diary, which was full of poems, stories and insights, that kind of thing. I did come out of that dark night, fortunately, and at the age of 25, I went to live in India and stayed in New Delhi in an Indian social work religious community that my sister and her husband lived in. I soon fell in love with the social work element of the community, and I was experiencing loads of healing, and then I began to find inner strength, which I hadn't known before. So it became clear to me I had two loves, writing and community work. I guess I really did experience hope at that time.
0: Wonderful. I love that you've channeled your passion for mental health issues into the arts. I guess that's a perfect segue into what uh, I'd love to talk with you about next. Uh, you've got a new podcast. Um, how exciting. Congratulations. It's called Zerubabel Bow and the Day the World Stopped Crying. That's a really interesting title. Can you tell our listeners about what your podcast is about?
1: While the podcast is a nine-part story. I perform the main character. It is uh, best described as a speculative dystopian fiction with an underlying theme of hope. There is an underlying theme of hope because I do believe there is hope in the human predicament. However, I'll give a heads up to the listening audience that it is a dystopian story where the narrator does mention issues around mass murder, suicide and violence. I thought I'd say that up front, in case that is something people don't want to listen to. Uh, The story takes place in the 2090s, when in April, 2091, the world stopped crying. In the 2090s, this inability to cry is called the second catastrophe, while the climate crisis is simply called the catastrophe. Uh, In 2093, Zerubbabel, an emeritus professor in grief and loss, is authorised by the United Nations to attempt to stimulate the earth crying once more. So that's basically what the story is about. Along with this story are 27 rock songs written by my brother and me, except for one song in which my brother collaborates with someone else.
0: Wow, it sounds like you've got lots in there. I've had a listen and it's definitely great. Um, Can you tell our listeners uh, where they can find the podcast and I'll be sure to include that information in the show notes?
1: Yes. Well, simply go to my website called thedaytheworld.com and there it is, the whole nine parts. And there's also a contact section there if you want to contact me.
0: Wonderful. All right. Well, what's the meaning behind the name of your podcast, The Day of
1: uh, the World Stopped Crying? I've called the podcast The Day the World Stopped Crying because it is a metaphor for what I see is happening in our world today. While I see a lot of good things happening with the mental health domain and people are working around the clock to develop healing and growth in our world, such as well ways, I also see a world which has lost touch with its pain. We've become alienated from ourselves and we're moving further and further away from our better angels. And by better angels, I mean where we reach out to support others rather than submit to self-interest. In this sense of metaphor, the world has stopped crying. I use the word world in the title because I see it as a collective problem. It means I see for a collective movement towards learning the art of grieving. When we're out of touch with our pain and we don't heal that pain, we can take it out on others or else we become alienated from ourselves and act out in ways that are self-destructive like addictions and so on. Therefore, we need to learn the art of grieving for ourselves. Also, when we're out of touch with the pain of others, we set up injustices and oppressive responses, such as we're seeing towards refugees and Indigenous peoples in our country. In other words, politicians can also be out of touch with the pain of others, but it can also include our own family members, co-workers and people in the local community. We need to learn the art of grieving with others. Thirdly, we can lose touch with the pain of the environment, and this is reflected in government policy and our own personal connection to the earth. We need to learn the art of grieving with the environment.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of things that I guess we're still, we are still haven't learnt from and still could learn from. Um, you have mentioned the fact that Uh, you think our responses to trauma, grief and loss haven't really changed that much. Can you elaborate a bit more on that?
1: Okay, so uh, let me go back to the 1950s, 60s and 70s, I guess. To tease this out, I was born only nine years after World War II and as I was growing up, there was no talk about the emotional, psychological and spiritual fallout from the war. Yet millions were killed in that war. There was no post-traumatic stress disorder clinics in my neighborhood for people who suffered in the war. Then Vietnam happened and those who fought in the war struggled to get their trauma recognized. In the 2000s, if we look around us, we're witnesses to the fact that people who went to Afghanistan, East Timor and Iraq felt their trauma was ignored by authorities. Not only that, but people in the police force, air force, the Navy and so on, felt their trauma was ignored. So I believe there is a pattern of ignoring trauma in our world.
0: Yeah, and I think we see that often with veterans who have served and a lot that still don't feel like that they have their trauma um, even recognised or, as you said, the grief that follows from that as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, look, going back into my own family in the 1950s, another part of my story was that my mum had a, a breakdown around the time I was born my mother was told by her psychiatrist to get on with to get on with it. Her belief now is that she was suffering from postnatal depression. My mother has mostly not grieved her wounds throughout her whole life and she certainly wasn't given the opportunity to grieve in her dark time. I think that set up a pattern for her
0: i'm sorry to hear that uh, that was your mum 's experience. Um... And again, it's a common story, and it's one that I can relate to myself. You are right. People who have been let down by uh, past by clinicians really need to have the support now to move past the grief. I mean, we do focus a lot on what we can do better, but we don't
1: focus on, you know, the people that we haven't helped in the past. True, true. And um, look, during the nineteen fifties, I was growing up as a kid, and uh, when I look back at that time, I realised I was hiding my depression. The question is, why did I have to hide my internal world as a child? Why was it forbidden to tell people how I was feeling? Now, fast forward to the 1990s, and I thought I'd done enough work on my emotional wounds during the 80s. And I thought being a youth worker qualified me as a together human being. But as we know, life doesn't turn out the way you want it to be, you know. so during the 1990s, my childhood issues began, began to rear their ugly head and, again, I was in deep trouble. I now realise, of course, that healing our lives is an ongoing process and uh, rarely stops. So when I brought up my children, I thought I was the best father. And, look, I do get on well with my kids, but, but the fact is that uh, I began to realise that I'd brought my own emotional baggage with me and it impacted on them. And once again, I'd ignored my trauma. So history was repeating itself. In fact, my children were hiding how they were feeling as I did as a child. But what I find really interesting is that my experience as a kid of not being able to tell anyone about how I was feeling and so on, um, wasn't unique to me. I began to meet lots of people, people who had divorces and people that were struggling emotionally, um, who were saying the same thing about their own childhood. So I guess I was by no means alone.
0: Yeah, I think that's you know, a common theme as well, is that we've all kind of experienced this together. Um, but when no one's talking about it, we can't share and, uh, and work through it. Thanks for sharing your story with us, Vincent. It's great that you can recognise that there is transgenerational trauma, giving yourself and your family the chance to heal. Um, as I said, I can relate to that myself, and I'm sure many people can. Um, So, Vincent, you've talked um, so far, you've spoken about the trauma after World War II and recent years like, uh, sorry, recent wars like Afghanistan. Then you spoke about your mother's depression and your own. Do you have any other observations of grief that you'd like to share
1: um, with us? Yeah, there's a few things I want to say. Firstly, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who uh, I pretty much admire. I think she was a pioneer for death and dying. In 1969, she wrote On Death and Dying. She died in 2004, actually, and and she wrote a book with David Kessler called On Grief and Grieving, and that was published in 2005. Um, And um, in that book, she says uh, that we're living in a society which is death-denying and grief-dismissing. Notice that her first book, On Death and Dying, was published in 1969, and in 2004, she was saying we are still grief dismissing and death denying. I respect her quite a lot. Um, so that's, I find that very interesting that she said that 35 years later. Secondly, in this discussion about grief and loss, I just wanted to mention the significance of Royal Commissions that Australia has had over the years. Importantly, these commissions are the most solid, objective evidence we have of ignored trauma in our society. And um, we've had, and in some cases are presently having, royal commissions into mental health, looking at weaknesses in our health system and the broader pervasiveness of mental illnesses and suicides in our state. Other commissions include family violence, treatment of people with a disability, institutional responses to child sexual abuse, Aboriginal deaths in custody, aged care quality and safety, and so on. While all these areas are unique in their own right, for me, there's a common thread in all of them. And that is the normalization of ignoring the pain of people involved in these settings. While there's been progress on many fronts, there's also been a recycling of the issues, like we're going nowhere, and also, Um, many churches have still not really identified with the pain of those who have suffered. So a key for me is to unlock the hidden potential in collective change by creating a grieving culture. This in my view, um, addresses at least one part, but a significant part of the jigsaw puzzle. But let's tease out the Royal Commission into Family Violence. The Commission had two hundred and twenty seven recommendations, and I believe it's important to support all of them. In fact, we need to support all those who worked extremely hard to eliminate violence so let 's get behind them. Um, in the website the Commission's website there's three key, key statements. firstly, the Commission was asked to consider the need to establish a culture of non nonviolence. How do we establish a, no, a culture of nonviolence well. I believe to establish a culture of nonviolence, we must, among other things, establish a grieving culture. Secondly, uh, the Premier, Daniel Andrews, said quite insightfully, I think, that family violence was an unspeakable crime and that we can con- if we continue with the usual policies, we will have the same tragedies. It's my view that if we don't include collective change in our government policies, we will continue the usual policies. We need as many people as possible to learn the art of grieving and it's important for politicians to take the lead and be examples of those who learn the art of grieving themselves. So I'd like to see politicians learn the art of grieving.
0: Yeah, sounds like it would work if it was for everyone as well.
1: Exactly. And thirdly, um, the Commission concluded that it recognises too little effort is devoted to preventing the occurrence of family violence in the first place. And the key here is changing how we teach our children to engage with trauma.
0: Yeah, start when they're little, It's really important. You've spoken consistently about the need for collective change in relation to our responses to trauma, grief
1: and loss in our society. What does collective change look like to you? Well, the simple answer is that the more people who engage with the art of grieving, the better it'll be for our world. Uh, Because when we develop the art of grieving for ourselves, We will have made peace with ourselves and that's one of the hardest things we can ever do. It will mean you won't project your frustrations onto others and you won't blame others for your predicament. When we learn to grieve with others, we do not discriminate or judge them. We take away our assumptions about them. When we learn to grieve with the environment, we become more sensitive to the suffering of nature as we saw... Uh, burnt koalas escaping in the recent fires in Australia and people were rescuing them. They were identifying with the pain of that koala. Um, I've chosen to commit myself to the art of grieving for the rest of my life and I'd like to see groups of people come together to explore that idea, flesh out what it all could mean, see if there's any relevance to it. Of course, I'd like to see everyone taking up this art. And I'd also like to see people in positions of power, like politicians, lawyers, doctors, journalists, and so on, taking it up. So people could ask themselves these questions. Do I know how to grieve? And will it really make a difference if I do? The more complex answer to your question is that to create a grieving culture, we must have long-term vision. Uh, So I've got about seven points I just wanted to um, clarify. And um, the first one is that we need to continue to explore the profound nature of personal loss, which I think we're doing pretty well at. Um, I think we should constantly recognise the persistent pattern of anti-grief in our society, which is deeply embedded, which is what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about. We need to give ourselves permission to create a journey of grieving for ourselves, the loss of self and the loss of who we are. And we need to establish a wider and deeper understanding of grief where we don't see grief just as psychological and psychic and emotional and spiritual and so on. We also see it connected to poverty, see it connected to politics. So I know a book called uh, political trauma, so it is collected, connected to put the political, the social, the cultural, and ecology, which is the environment. You know, because I, I do believe the uh, environment does suffer uh, by the way we treat it, and um, we need to have grief at the centre of our beliefs rather than the, the outer edges, so that we're not so stoic. You know, so we can admit we're vulnerable. We can admit we're we're fragile. And we need to be practical in our responses to other people's pain, who need our help through identifying with them in their suffering. And lastly, where we collectively create a healthy, balanced and constructive grieving culture, which is a peacemaking culture. because when we're out of touch with our wo- when we're in touch with our wounds, sorry, and heal our wounds, we make peace with those around us.
0: So how would you recommend then for people to manage their grief and what ways do you think people can move forward and make room for change, uh, room for growth and change?
1: Right. So I think I've answered part of those questions in the seven points of the previous answer. But to add to that, there are more points to consider. Firstly, I want to say that everyone's grief journey will be different. There's no blueprint on how you should grieve or even what grief is. For the last 18 years, I've been doing John Bradshaw's inner child exercises, uh, which have been a game changer for me in, term, in terms of learning how to feel the feelings of the original trauma. That means going back into your childhood, going back to that original trauma, and feeling the feelings. And that's freed me on many levels. Now that's not everyone's cup of tea, I, I agree. but. For others, uh, their grief journey will be unique to them and where they are on their journey. Above all else, grief work is about a duty of care to yourself, to take care of yourself, take care of your health and safety. It's about loving yourself. So don't do them if they're not the appropriate time to do them. So uh, there's no need to rush it. So uh, you have your whole life to work it out. So please take time. Take complete care of yourself. Grieving is a process which must be done at the right time, in the right way, with the right support um, structure. Take a holistic approach. There's many options out there, including medical practitioners, psychiatrists, psychologists therapists or counsellors, support groups or recovery groups like AA. I think AA has been fantastic over the years. And uh, I have a friend who testifies to that. Uh, And you've got alternative methods of healing. Don't um, miss out on those two. Healthy food and good exercise, getting out there and exercise like we're doing at the moment with the shutdown. and finally I encourage people to study grief. Go out there and have a look yourself. Find out what, what it is all about.
0: Yeah, that's some good advice. And I think, yeah, it's it's good to to remember too that, you know, the holistic um, methods really do support alongside with the clinical. Often we focus, you know, wholly wholly on the clinical side when there's other things out there. So it's
1: important to note
0: that as well. Do you have any final words regarding collective change?
1: Sure. Um as I was thinking about this program. I realised when I was about fifteen uh, years of age, I went up the road from my high school and smoked a cigar in a laneway with the other school kids. You know, we were just <laughs> a lot of kids do. Um, I was very sick that afternoon. Noon, let me tell you, I sat in class. I, I nearly wanted to throw up. Oh no. Uh, uh, But I ended up smoking for another 10 years, you know. Um, It was the cool thing to do. And people smoked on trains and buses back then. But as you've seen in the 1990s, we saw a complete turnaround regarding smoking. You know, people just came together and said enough is enough, you know. Um, People are getting sick through people smoking around them and so forth. So there was collective change and collective change was and is possible. Um, and, um, I was just thinking about the Corona pandemic, you know, and, and look how things have changed. Uh, it's it was amazing. Forced, it was forced on us, mm. that's for sure. But there's lessons to be garnered from that. Um, if I told you at the end of 2019, that people in the whole of Melbourne would be wearing masks and working from their home, you would have said I was crazy. <laughs> uh, well, collective change has happened, and it is possible when we make it happen, you know, and, and we stop making excuses for it. You know, mm-hmm. it's too complicated, you know. And so um, when I was working in the hospitals, uh, many said it was impossible to work from home because of privacy issues. Oh, no, you couldn't do that. Well, mm-hmm. all of a it's become possible. So I guess... To become a grieving culture, we have to bring up our children in the context of us adults creatively responding to trauma. And we need to become models uh, for future generations.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of food for thought. You know, it's important to acknowledge you know, our past and where we've come from and I guess what we can look towards in the future. And you're right, I think the coronavirus situation has taught us that we're a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for and, and we're capable of change. That's true. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Vincent, for coming on the show today and sharing your story and insight with our listeners. Uh, you can find more of our shows on our website, brainwaves.org.au or on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au or on iTunes. If you have a story to share or if you would like to send us feedback or suggestions for future shows, you can do so via email at brainwaves at Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe and we'll be back next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR. Now, as we end the show, we'd like to play a song by Vincent's brother, Jack Tivoli, called You Are So Positive. It's a track found on the podcast Zerubabal, Bo, and The Day the World Stopped Crying.